The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to turn with me this morning back to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll go ahead and uh, read this whole chapter for you just to have a broader context. We'll only really look at the first portion of Nehemiah chapter 2, but we do want to read the whole, the whole chapter for you to set a little bit more context. Nehemiah chapter 2 and in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year, of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I said him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a, later unto, <clears throat> and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me, and this is our focus today, According to the good hand of my God upon me, the good, providential, unseen, guiding hand of God. And notice that phrase will come back up in a moment. According to the good hand of my God upon me. <clears throat> then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the city of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men that were with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, <clears throat> even before 
the dragon well into the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, and there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and I viewed the wall and turned back and and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, and how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the cities thereof are burned with, or the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And I told them of the good hand, excuse me, I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? And I answered them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. <clears throat> now back up to uh, the latter portion of Nehemiah chapter 1 and the prayer that Nehemiah was praying. We uh, described for you last time that he began, he found out uh, about this report from Jerusalem in the ninth month of the year. And then he has this, op- this opportunity uh, to present his request before the king in the first month of the year. So for four months, he prayed in private, in fasting, and mourning, and in diligent, fervent prayer. And uh, despite his, uh, his inward uh, sorrow, he was always able to put on a good face when he went to work. And uh, apparently there came a time <clears throat> where he was just so overwhelmed and so burdened down with this burden that finally his sorrow of heart finally showed up on his face. But notice uh, some language that he used in this prayer uh, that he consistently prayed, but as is typically the case when the Lord places a burden upon you, that burden grows and it becomes heavier with time. I know that um, when he first began praying this prayer, he probably didn't have an inclination of what the Lord was calling him to do. He was just burdened down because uh, the city of my father's sepulchers is burned with fire. And I'm, I'm in sorrow and I'm praying the Lord will bless. I'm praying the Lord will uh, send someone. I don't think he was expecting it to be him, but send someone to, to lead them to, to build up this wall. Uh, but as is typically the case, when the Lord lays a burden on you, it, it grows over time and it becomes more pressing over time. So I, I believe that probably toward the end of that, he was realizing that the Lord is calling me to this work. 
And I think his, his prayer gets a little bit more specific, uh, probably closer to the time of when he had the opportunity to present the request before the king. <clears throat> but I want you to notice, remember we talked in this prayer, he is saying that, Lord, you are righteous. You are always a God of your word. And the only reason that these walls have been broken down is because we've been disobedient. And we also know you're a God of your word, that if we confess and we repent, then you will send restoration. You're always a God of your word. And in the midst of that, <clears throat> he prays this in Nehemiah chapter 1 and in verse 10. And notice this language he, he uses. Um, now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. By thy strong hand. And then, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, other people that were praying for this as well, who desire to fear thy name. But he also knew something was building. He knew, he knew that there was going to have to be a conversation with uh, the king and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. And, you know, it's, it's so amazing, so simplistic, but yet so amazing at the same time that I believe it's just so, again, so simple uh, that many times we have not because we ask not, right? I mean, isn't it amazing that he asked for mercy in the sight of the king? And what did he get? He got mercy in the sight of the king, right? And, and just overflowing mercy. I mean, I don't think he could have even really expected it to go as well as it did. But that shouldn't be surprising. If he had prayed consistently for mercy in the sight of the king, praying to the, the God who holds the heart of the king in his hand and he turn, turns it whithersoever he will, that shouldn't be surprising that the, the Lord moved the heart of the king to show mercy to him if that's what he'd been praying and fasting over for four months, right? So many times, obviously, we have not because we ask not. But notice, he says there in verse 10, Lord, he's reminding him, uh, reminding himself, really. Obviously, he's not reminding God, but he's reminding himself of God's faithfulness in prayer. And I think he's going all the way back, all the way back to the mighty hand of God that delivered them from Egyptian bondage, right? He's going all the way back to that, that pivotal, powerful moment in the history of the, of the nation of Israel. And he said, Lord, do you remember when by your strong hand you redeemed your people out of bondage, <laughs> out of a situation that seemed absolutely impossible? And uh, we're going to talk today, uh, Lord willing, about the hand of God. And I want to go ahead and, and uh, say for you uh, that, that God, uh, Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, he has a literal hand, the way that we have a hand, right? But God is a spirit, okay? God's a spirit. So, yes, Jesus Christ is a man, and he's a man in heaven, and he has uh, the, the hands that he had uh, for 33 and a half years when he's up in heaven now, and he has the, those hands of a man, the ones that have the nail prints in them, right? But when it talks about the hand of God, God is not sitting up in heaven as just this huge entity that has the same physical body parts that we have sitting up on his throne, right? No, the Bible gives us 
language is a really fancy word for it that I can't really remember. I've heard people say it. But, but anyway, it gives uh, God human attributes so we can have a better understanding of his nature, right? So God does not have a physical God, the Father, God outside of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, right? He does not have a physical hand sitting up on his throne in heaven. But I, I just want you to think if he did, if he did, think about how powerful and huge that hand would be. Okay? Now, we're going to come back to some of this later on, hopefully, Lord willing. But think about what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, that he holds all of the waters in this world in the hollow of his hand. Okay? Um, if you've ever sat on uh, the side of the beach or, or even the gulf or, I mean, even... Even just a lake where you can't even see the see the horizon. Think about all of the probably trillions. I mean, just just the the magnitude of the gallons of water that are. I mean, okay, let's look at it from a different. Look at how big the land is. Okay, think about how big the land is in this world, and then realize that this world is like seventy percent water, right? <laughs> I mean, it is just absolutely mind-boggling to think about the amount of water that's on this earth, right? And God holds all of that in the hollow of his hand. And then, again, just kind of projecting out so you can just... The pur purpose of this is not to give you a scale. <laughs> the purpose of this is to say, wow, God's so amazing and powerful and big, we can't comprehend him, right? But think, think about it. If he holds all that water in the hollow of his hand... It, if you projected that out, how big must his whole body be, <laughs> right? To, I mean, if he, if he, uh, all the the stars that we don't even know hardly anything about, there are literally specks in our in our sky at night, and those are the work of his fingers, right? And think about the billions and billions of stars. So when you use that kind of language, he goes all this, all the water on the earth in the hollow of his hand, and he and he uh, stretched out the heavens with a span, which is the uh, as you stretch out your hand like this, it's the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. He stretched out the universe with his hand, essentially, right? So if the universe that we can't even determine how big it is, if he did all that with his hand, how big must his whole body be, right? Figuratively, The point of that is to say his ways are so much higher than our ways, right? <laughs> his thoughts are so much. God is so big and powerful and majestic that we can't comprehend. So Nehemiah is latching on to that, right? He's saying we have an impossible task. And he's saying, Lord, do you remember when you redeemed us? from Egyptian bondage. And boy, you want to talk about the powerful hand of God moving in bringing Egypt, Egypt to their knees and then opening up by the... Now, he used, he used an east wind, but I, I think we can think about the hand of God opening up the Red Sea, right? Look, look at all of the powerful hand of God that was exhibited in them being redeemed from Egyptian bondage. And he said, you know... That's the song we sing today. Lord, you're just the same today, right? You, you've got just as much power today. And Lord, please remember you redeemed us by your strong hand then. 
and Lord, manifest your strong hand now. Okay? Uh, now, before we make our way to Nehemiah chapter 2, you don't have to turn here, uh, but I want to read this verse for you <clears throat> to kind of keep in mind. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 16 and in verse 9, and we talked uh, Nehemiah's prayer about how the Lord <clears throat> will... In Nehemiah 2, we, we see the, the powerful, um, providential, unseen hand of God moving in a powerful way, right? And what he says in, in the prayer in Nehemiah 1 is that, Lord, if we're obedient, I mean, it all boils down to obedience to the word of God or chastisement or judgment for disobedience. The Lord makes things simple, Right? He makes things so simple for us. But if you obey, my hand is going to be so strong in blessing you that you won't even be able to handle the blessings I'm going to give you. But also, if you're disobedient, my hand is going to be so strong in chastising you, you are going to be absolutely miserable in that chastisement, right? But I want you to think about that in the positive, though. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and in verse 9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. So God is seeking out people. God is active. And this tells you, you know, we're, we're all sinners and boy, we're all a mess. It's hard, to, it's hard for him to find people, right? I mean, he's looking to and fro. He's looking everywhere. And when we say our heart's perfect before him, none of our hearts are perfect. We hope that the Lord will guide us to love him more with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, many places in Scripture, the word perfect means mature, and we want to be growing to maturity, but none of us are ever fully mature, right? So there's no person's heart that is perfect, but the Lord knows your heart. He knows if you're earnestly pursuing him, or if you're just complacent and lukewarm, the Lord knows all that, and he has a way of, of convicting your heart if you're not where you ought to be, too, right? But the Lord, I want you to think about that. The Lord is, is actively pursuing people who are living in obedience for him to show his powerful, strong hand in their life. He, he's looking for people <laughs> to, why? Because God's all about his glory, right? He's all about his glory. And he wants to find vessels that his glory and his power can be manifested in. I mean, think about Nehemiah, okay? The Lord laid this burden on Nehemiah. I, I, I think it's probably reasonable to presume that in all the Jews that were there in, uh, in Persia at that time, there was probably somebody that, uh, that worked in construction, that worked as a project manager, that worked as an architect. You know, the Lord did not burden a person that had great career physical skills of project management and construction to lead this great work, did he? Why? Because somebody might have been tempted to say, oh, yeah, that's right. He knew what he was doing. He had this project in Persia and this project. In that's no surprise that he whipped that project. You want to know? Nehemiah's, what, what was his uh, occupation? His occupation was being a cupbearer. His goal, his, his job was to drink what the, uh, what the king was going to drink and not die. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? All, his job was just to drink 
what the king was going to drink to make sure it's not poisoned. And if he died, he died. But if he stayed alive, then the king could drink it. There is no skills in that job that make him qualified to lead this effort, right? I mean, this is a very popular little quip in, in Christianity today, but, it's, but it's, uh, it's not in the Bible, but it's certainly taught that God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called, right? Because nobody's qualified. <laughs> nobody's qualified to do. But, but furthermore, the Lord does not pick people that you would look at because, you know, I think he, uh, he did that with Israel the first time they wanted the king, and he gave them what they wanted with Saul, right? The really impressive guy. He looks like a man's man. He looks like a king's king. But who was it that God chose after he rejected Saul? It was a humble little shepherd who was a man after God's own heart. Remember, he shows he, he seeks out people to, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him, right? So it is a blessed thing to see the powerful movement of the hand of God in this world, in the kingdom, but especially when you see the movement of the hand of God in your life, right? But he uses people that are very unimpressive. Why? So he gets all the glory for it, okay? That's why he exalted Nehemiah. He didn't exalt someone who people would look at and say, He's a really good architect. He's a really good construction manager. No, he had no qualifications. The only qualification was that the Lord laid this on him. And the Lord used that to show his powerful good hand so that he would get the glory for it, right? And that's how the Lord sees fit to do things. But I, I, I want you to keep that verse in mind as we see the Lord's movement um, in the life of Nehemiah because God is actively seeking out people to show himself powerful in their life. Why? And, and, and by the way, that's why he's seeking out people that have their heart perfect toward him because if their heart is not perfect, they might be lifted up with pride and not give him all the glory for it, right? But if you have, if your heart is perfect before him and you see yourself as, as inadequate as you are, then you are in a pretty good position for the Lord to use you in his kingdom. So uh, when he calls you to do something that you know you have no capacity to do, your only answer could be, well, if, if, this were, if this turned out good, it had to be of the Lord, right? It had to be uh, that the Lord did this great work and he gets all the glory for it. I don't detract from that at all, okay? So he is actively seeking people to show out his powerful hand on their behalf. And we certainly hope that our hearts would be right before him where he would manifest that in our life. And certainly Nehemiah exhibits that in four months of prayer and fasting, doesn't he? He shows the condition of his heart. And he shows the, the perfection and the maturity of his heart and his submission to God's will. And he shows himself worthy and the Lord shows himself strong on Nehemiah's behalf. And then obviously many other people are blessed by that. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Came to pass in the month Nisan, the first 
uh, in the March to April time frame, but in the first Jewish month, uh, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, um, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king, and, and I had not been before time sat in his presence. We don't know how long he'd been working for the king, but obviously they had a close relationship, and it, it hadn't been a short period of time. And even during this, these four months where he was fasting, he was, he was in affliction, he, he was burdened down by this prayer, he, he still... Uh, you know, describes people in the Old Testament. They were in sackcloth and ashes, but they cleaned themselves up before they went out sometimes. So that's what he did. He cleaned himself up, and he always made sure he showed up uh, with a good attitude. And part, part of that is why. Why, why did he do that? Uh, sometimes uh, the, the story of Esther gets a lot, a lot of prominence in the sense of, of Esther taking her life in her hands of going before the king, and if he didn't hold out the scepter, that she would be killed. And that's certainly true. But but this, every day was a life and death situation for Nehemiah. Okay, why? Why? Um, because if he's the one that's supposed to be drinking the wine, drinking the the drink, to make sure that the king is not poisoned, you know how people get when they're when they. Uh, are lying, when they're covering some up, they get nervous, right? They start acting out of character. So if you start acting like that before the king, the king's going to start thinking a conspiracy's probably up, right? You're probably part of a conspiracy to try to kill me. So he had to put on a good face every day because every day he walked in the presence of the king, it was a life and death situation. Because if the king thought something was up, thought maybe he was up on a conspiracy. He could have Nehemiah killed any day, okay? So he had not been before time sad in his presence because there's a good chance I could be killed if I showed up sad in his presence, you know? And I was acting awkward and acting nervous and sweating really bad, you know? Uh, I, could be, I could be killed for that. But the king noticed that. They obviously had a long working relationship and a rapport there. Why is thy accountant sad? Seeing thou are not sick, you know it, it's evident you're not uh, you're not physically sick, and obviously he could he could see. I think he knew him well enough that he said this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Now, it's understandable that Nehemiah's first reaction to this is then I was very sore afraid, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, this is the moment I've been praying for, but boy, you know he had cotton mouth and a lump in the back of his throat, right? I mean, because it's, I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to be courageous in, in, in talking with even people we know and love sometimes and hard, hard conversations. But his life is on the line right here, okay? Now, we are on the radio. We're concluding... Um, our series on Jesus Christ and the law, and Lord willing, if the Lord continues to burden me in this way, uh, we hope to begin a series on the will of God and discerning God's will. And uh, I have a study guide on that that I did quite a while back, a few years ago, and we'll kind of go through that <clears throat> on the radio, Lord willing. But there's um, a few focuses, I guess you could say, uh, that I tried to highlight there uh, in discerning God's will. And the attitude in sequential order of uh, patience, wisdom, and courage. Okay, patience, 
wisdom and courage. Because many times we're like Nehemiah. You know, I feel burdened about something. I don't know how the Lord's going to play it out. You know, we pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I don't know. I don't know. There are some instances, you know, Abraham is a very unique circumstance because he had been told by the Lord he was going to have a son, right? That was a very unique circumstance. There are other people that had been told by the Lord that was something was going to happen, and yes, their faith was tested, but they had a lock, stock promise from the Lord that something was going to happen. But we don't have that. We don't have that. We don't know the Lord's will for our life, so therefore it's hard to discern, right? And many times you have to spend long periods of time and that four months can be longer than four literal months, right, of prayer and fasting and waiting on the Lord's will. So during those times, you know, think about Nehemiah in, you know, three and a half months into that four-month prayer meeting, right, that he was having. You know, it would be easy for him to get discouraged and get concerned. So while we're waiting on the Lord's will, we have to have patience, right? We have to have patience. And then... To discern when the Lord is opening the door, we've got to have wisdom. But then, when that door's open, you've got to have courage to go through the door, right? Now, I think he, he exhibited the patience, right? He, he was faithful and diligent for four months and praying and fasting. And now, he saw in wisdom that this is the moment I've been praying for. But boy, it's still difficult to be courageous <laughs> when there are uh, real uh, consequences of a mistake, right? I mean, he, he could very easily be killed by the end of this conversation, right? So, fear, this, this is way too big of a topic for us to delve off into today, but fear can be a beneficial thing in our life. I mean, it's good. Like, fear is, is like many things in our life. It's, it's neutral. I mean, fear can, can, can cause you to act in dangerous situations to preserve your life. But, as with everything, but all things be done in moderation. If you, if you let that fear consume you, though, in this instance, if he let fear consume him, he wouldn't have the courage to press through the wide open door that the Lord had clearly opened for him. So what I want you to understand is he had been doing everything right. He'd been praying for four months and fasting and praying, and he discerned uh, that this is, this is the time I've been praying for. But he also was terrified. <laughs> Why? Because he's standing before the king, and not only, not you know, I, I don't necessarily think he was, I think the spirit just kind of got up in him, if you'll let me kind of use that. I don't think he started out that conversation thinking he was going to ask for timber, okay? I don't, I don't think he started out. But I think the spirit just kind of welled up in him and said, wow, the Lord's in this. We might as well just swing for the fences, right? And I think that's pretty much what happened. I mean, but he started out and he said, oh, boy, <laughs> this is what I've been praying for. But I am terrified. And, by, and if you ever let that... Cause, Fear is natural, okay? Don't, don't think fear is sinful. You've got to control it. You've got to control it. And by the way, how do you control it? You control it by prayer. <laughs> you, you, you control it with prayer in the midst of tense conversations, right? So he's afraid, but it wasn't. That's just a natural response. I mean, God's wired us that way, okay? And it's not wrong for 
our, our blood pressure to rise a little bit. And I, I mean, that's not wrong. Like, that's just the way God has wired us, and that can be beneficial in certain circumstances. So it's not sinful for him to be afraid. But praise the Lord that gave him, the Lord gave him courage to press through that fear. So I said unto the king, first of all, let the king live forever. Okay, don't be afraid that I'm a part of a conspiracy, right? Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the place of my father's sepulchers lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? You know, at this point, uh, he hasn't even asked for anything. He's just, he's venting, really. He, he's saying, well, you know, what's wrong? How, how are you doing today? And he said, I'm doing bad. I'm doing bad because I'm sad. I mean, so he asked, how are you doing? And he told him how he's doing. But then he, said, he gives him an opportunity. He says, well, to what do you make request? And it's at that point when he's afraid, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. In the middle of a conversation, a tense conversation where you are afraid, he said, Lord, please bless me. <laughs> Lord, please give me the right words to say, but also give me boldness. Don't let me shirk back. Don't let me uh, just, just let fear uh, not... Give me the boldness and courage of words that I know that you're burdening me to do. Don't let me just shirk back and be afraid. Lord, give me boldness. So I pray to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest <coughs> send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen sitting right there by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when shalt thou return? And it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, it took him three months to even get back, okay? The journey from Shushan to Jerusalem was 900 miles, okay? And it took him three months to even get there. Now, Nehemiah ends up staying gone for 12 years, okay, as the governor of, of Jerusalem. But he first says, how long are you going to be gone? Well, he ends up being gone for 12 years, now, that didn't deter the king. And the king said, okay, it pleased the king to send me. And then he said, moreover, I said unto the king. So now I think the spirit's welling up in him. And, and he's, he's sure, no, no doubt, praying while he's saying this too, right? But he's saying, moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. So there's a lot of different... Um, provinces that I'm going to have to go through to get back to Jerusalem. And I want to make sure that I have a letter from the king saying I have authority to go through this. And also, you help me if I need it while I'm passing through your particular province. And then the, the boldest request, and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to thy house and, and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He asks for leave. He asks for, he ends up getting a military escort. He has letters of approval to go through these provinces. But he shows up with a military escort. There weren't any, uh, the, the, the surrounding provinces hated the Jews. That's Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem. And they start coming out of the woodwork and they start persecuting them. But they hated the Jews. So if there's a Jew that's coming through there and there's not a military escort and a, and a king's approval, they'll probably just kill him, okay? So he has approval from the king that he can show them, the letter with the king's seal on it. 
and he's showing up, and if they if he shows that letter and he's got a whole military with him, even if they hate the Jews, they're not going to mess with him, right? And then he gets the materials for this rebuilding effort from the Persian government. Amazing. Amazing, right? Now, when I say that from the Persian government, um, don't turn over here, but um, First Chronicles 29 and 12. Now, the, the uh, Persian government may have been the people that were kind of holding it for the time being. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand, in God's hand, right? In God's hand is power and might, and in thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. You know, we look at it and we say, man, I can't believe the Persians gave them that timber. It wasn't the Persians' timber. <laughs> that was God's timber, right? That's God's wood. That, that, that's his. And you know what? He moved the king to say, you know what? I'm going to give Nehemiah what's mine, and I'm just going to give it to you uh, legally and title-wise through, through the Persian government. But that's his timber. And he has, boy, if you ever think there's anything too hard for the Lord, he has this whole world at his disposal. <laughs> Everything. Even the timber that happened to be owned for the time being at the Persian government, that was fully at his disposal. And the Lord moved that Persian king to say, we're going to give it to him. Because all of those things, this whole world is literally in the hand of God. Now, <laughs> Nehemiah was living out this answered prayer right here before the king, right? And you've probably seen this in your life too. When you see the Lord moving in a powerful way and you see the good hand of God moving, boy, it emboldens you, right? You get excited because you see the movement of the good hand of God. And now he had clarity. He Not only did I feel this, you know, you know what does a burden feel like? And I, I don't have a great answer for that. But many times what you will find is when you act on what you perceive to be a burden and the Lord starts opening doors like this, that he's just stamping seals of approval all along the way to certify you that this, this is of the Lord, Right? When you start seeing, you feel a burden and you pursue that, and then the good hand of the Lord is upon you on each step of the way, boy, that just gives you so much more spiritual excitement and emboldenedness, right? So he is riding that wave of God's providence in the good hand of God moving upon him. Then he goes back uh, to Jerusalem, and I want to highlight a few phrases. Verse 12 <clears throat> he arrives back home there to Jerusalem, and I rose in the night, and I, <clears throat> I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. The Lord had laid this burden heavy on his heart. Now, not only had he laid it on his heart, but he had opened all the doors and given all the provision for him. Why would I doubt? You know, it's, yeah. this kind of reminds me of the people of Israel right when they're on the cusp of entering in the land of Canaan, that first, that first generation, right? For some reason, those 10 folks, 10 out of the 12, they got afraid of those really tall giants, and they said, they forgot about Egypt, they forgot about the Red Sea, and they said, these giants, they're too big for the Lord, they're going to kill us, and we can't press into the kingdom. The Lord had them 
right on the cusp. And all they had to do, the Lord, they weren't going to defeat them. The Lord was going to defeat them, right? All they had to do was obey to press in, right? That's all they had to do. So he has them right on the cusp. <laughs> you see that? He gets them right to the edge of the promised land. And they drop the ball right on the edge of the promised land. So Nehemiah, he, he's got all the way right to the cusp of the promised land. He's got, he's got right to the cusp of what the Lord has guided him to do. So why should I doubt? This should have been the mindset of the Israelites, right? If God got us this far and he's been promised us uh, for generations upon generations that we're going to go back to this land, why would we be scared of these giants? Why would we be scared at all? God brought us right here. He's not going to let us be killed now, right? No, we're going to conquer these guys, right? He brought them right to the edge of, the, of Canaan's land, and they got afraid, they got scared, and that whole generation died in the wilderness. But Nehemiah now, he's brought him right to the edge of it. So why would Nehemiah at that point have any concerns <laughs> that the Lord is going to bless the rest of the effort, right? I mean, there's no way we could have made it this far, <laughs> if the good hand of God wasn't upon me. So then he finally expresses his burden to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, uh, our city's in uh, distress and the, the Jerusalem lies waste, the gates are burned up, verse, verse 18. Now notice this. Then I told them of the good hand of my God which was upon me. You know, you know these people were discouraged, right? It's just a regular day. We are, we are afflicted, we're persecuted by the people around us, our walls are broken down, our gates are burned with fire, and it's just a regular discouraged day in Jerusalem. And then somebody shows up with a bunch of, a bunch of wood, and he shows up with a military escort, and then he doesn't really say anything for three days. And then he finally explains to you the reason why he's here. Oh, and by the way, you know this Persian king, Artaxerxes, this, part, this Persian king that we don't really like, he gave you all this. And I made this request and the Lord moved his heart and he, he gave me leave and he gave me letters and he gave me all these materials. And when they heard that, they said, God's in this, right? They saw the good hand of the Lord. And what happened when they saw the good hand of the Lord? They said, let us rise up and build. Why? Because the Lord's in this work. It's evident by the movement, the providential hand of God that's on the, the Lord's in this work. And those people, when Nehemiah showed up, you know they were discouraged. You know they were downtrodden. But boy, the Holy Spirit welled up in them, and they said, let us rise up and build. Right? And then, conclusion of verse 18, so they strengthened their hands for this good work. And then you have... The enemies of God, the enemies of the kingdom, start trying to ridicule and throw water on the, on the fire and, and distract God's people. And I, and I love how uh, Nehemiah, being the leader of these people, he said in response to this uh, ridicule and persecution, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. You know, I don't, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care that you're trying to distract us from this great work. Why? If the God's brought us this far, the God of heaven is going to prosper us in the rest of the work. And, it, and it's that excitement and emboldenedness that allowed the people to finish the rebuilding of this massive wall in 52 days, which was impossible. 
by natural standards, right? It was impossible. But the good hand of God was upon this work. And when the good hand of God is on the work, the Lord will always prosper us. Okay? The Lord will always prosper us. <clears throat> now, um, the rest of our time, I want us to think in a bigger picture about the good hand of God, the movement of the providential good hand of God in our individual lives. Now, let's first of all think about how big this hand is. We, talked, we referenced that earlier, right? Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. I mean, think about how big that hand is. You are safe in that hand, right? I mean, you think some little old bitty, his hand's so big, you think some little old bitty piddly human on earth is going to be able to circumvent, you know, uh, Jesus talks in uh, John chapter 10, but my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me, and none shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. I tell you, you think that there's uh, some action that you commit, you don't repent of some sin here on this earth, or, or somebody entices you to sin, and, and you make a mistake, and that's enough to pluck you out of the hand of Almighty God and cast you in hell. That doesn't make any sense. Right? You, got, you do not understand the hand of God. <laughs> you do not have the correct vision of the hand of God if you think some little bit of trite thing or some person that ha- that, that's here in this earth, if you think they have the ability, or even you have the ability, to pluck yourself out of God's hand, boy, you've got the wrong vision. It, God's hand ain't near as weak as you think it is. <laughs> right? His hand is powerful, and boy, we are safe and secure in his hand, right? Another reason we're safe and secure in his hand, Isaiah 49 and verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Now, I know I've fallen into the trap of quoting that incorrectly in the past, but we've graven your names in the palm of your hand. That's not what it says. He's graven you. In the palm of his hand. Why is he graving you? Because you are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. You are a member of the bride of Christ and you are one with Christ. I mean, there's just as, yes, we are safely secure in his hand, but we are his hand. We are in his hand. We're part of it. It's just as much possibility of someone losing their salvation of God, of somebody cutting off the hand of God because we're in his hand. And that's a very safe place to be. Um, Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes to the end of his days and that seven years of humiliation out there, he finally comes and makes this profession. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. God's hand sovereign. It's not limited in any way. Okay? None can stay his hand. Um, we'll skip a couple of these. Uh, Psalm 118, verses 15 to 16. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Amen? The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. And the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Psalm 139. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. Psalm 139. And 
he's speaking here of the the omnipresence of God, the omnipresence and also the um, omniscience, the all knowledge of God. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me, you knowest my down sitting and my uprising, thou understandest my thought afar off. Skip to verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, notice this. Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Wherever I go, the Lord's hand will lead and guide me. Now, it is a tremendous blessing to see the providential movement of the Lord's hand in our life, powerful movements like Nehemiah, or obviously to a lesser degree, I don't think any of us have ever experienced something that amazing, but, but to a lesser degree, the movement of providential blessings in our life, and when we're experiencing those blessings, it's very easy to say, Lord, praise God. For your good hand upon me. But also, don't ever forget, the Lord's hand is always good upon you. Okay? The Lord's hand is always good upon you. Even if you're going through circumstances that are very uncomfortable. Suffering. The God does not always. We are, when we see someone that passes away in a car wreck, that it, from our perspective is younger than they should be, and the righteous are taken away from the evil to come, and we perceive that, as, as a tragedy, and it is for the family. But God, the good hand of God, protects you all the time. We are all but a step from death, right? We're all three feet from a head-on collision that takes us to glory. Every day, every day. We should see the good hand of God. But what happens many times is people get in, in suffering and they get in tragedy and, and grief, and then instead they, they want to say, when they're receiving blessings, I get the promotion, I get married, I have a baby, all these, all these blessings in our life. Praise God for the good hand of God upon me. But then they get a little uncomfortable and they say, oh, the bad, ha the bad hand of God is against me. No, listen, God's hand is always good towards you, always. Because, boy, it's terrifying to read the book of Job and see what happens when the Lord removes his hand of protection from you just a smidge. He removes it just a little bit, and all this wickedness of Satan just consumes the life of Job. Now, praise God, he puts his hand back, and he overrules it, <laughs> right, by the end of the book of Job. But look what happens when the Lord removes his hand. You know, think about, we talk about God's providential hedge. Think about his providential hedge as his protecting hand. What happens when he removes his hand just a little bit? Oh, all the wickedness that comes in Job's life. But you know what? Even when he, in his sovereignty and according to his will and for his, uh, his purposes and his glory, when he saw fit to remove that, his hand was still good. His hand was still good to do that because his hand is always good. And his hand is always operating for your good, <laughs> even when it's uncomfortable. Even when it's uncomfortable. You know, the good hand of God is still working for your good when he is chastising you for your disobedience. Now, that's not pleasant, is it? I mean, not, nobody enjoys getting whooped. Nobody enjoys getting spanked, you know. I heard minister say this weekend, nobody wakes up every day and says, man, I can't wait for somebody to tell me what I'm doing wrong today. I can't wait for somebody to rebuke me today. 
You know, nobody relishes that, right? But boy, when the Holy Spirit gives you that clarity in your heart, that's the good hand of the Lord upon you, even if it's uncomfortable. Why? Because the Lord's hand is always guiding you for your best interest. So, when we say, when, when I say the good hand of the Lord, you know, it's very easy for us during happy days <laughs> to say, oh, praise God for the good hand of the Lord that's upon me. Listen, the good hand of the Lord is always upon you. And his, his hand is so good upon you that even when you're walking in disobedience, he's so good to chastise you, to bring you back into obedience, right? Proving that his hand is good and faithful. <clears throat> Psalm 31 <clears throat> Psalm 31 and verse 5. Verse 15, rather. Now David is fleeing from Saul. Now there's not a specific event that this is uh, describing as some of the Psalms do, but uh, you could place the, the words of this Psalm in many different instances and in, in throughout David's story. But he says here in Psalm 31 and in verse 15, My times are in thy hand. My time, my whole life, my whole life is in your hand. And I hope that you understand and you know that you can see that that is a safe place to be. And God's hand will always be for your good. His hand is a safe place to be. <clears throat> Back last fall, October of 22, um, through the dishonest actions of management and my former employer, I found out that I, was getting, I worked out at two weeks of notice, but uh, that I was going to be looking for a new job. That was very unexpected, very unexpected, uh, especially the course of events that that took. <clears throat> and the Lord in his providence, he had graciously guided our schedule <laughs> that when all that fell out earlier in the week, uh, we had a trip to the beach scheduled for later in that week. So I was able to just not go back into work and go to the beach, go to the beach. And I remember distinctly that one evening we were there, the sunset, and the Lord gave me such a, such a peace that that's probably one of the most uncertain moments that I've probably ever had. I mean, I never expected that I would be in the state that I was in, uh, not knowing what my employment would be after two weeks, having literally no idea what route it would take. <clears throat> and I remember being there on the side of the water at sunset, and I thought about Isaiah 40 and verse 12, and it says, the Lord holds the hollow, the waters in the hollow of his hand. And you know what? I don't know what's going to happen. The Lord's forcing me to walk by faith, and boy, walking by faith isn't always fun. <laughs> the Lord's forcing me to walk by faith. But you know what? That same hand that holds the, those water, and this is just a little drop in the bucket. I mean, I'm just seeing a little bit. I mean, I can't even, with such a small percentage of the water on this earth, I'm just seeing a small little bitty of it. He holds all this water in the hollow of his hand, and he has me right there too. And the Lord gave me such peace that, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but you know what? I know, I know that I am safe in the hand of God. Now, fast forward. Worked out a two-week notice. We went on, went on a trip. Uh, started interviewing on that, uh, that Monday. And uh, 
the Lord opened the door. Much more to be said about that uh, with my current employer at Horn. And by that next Monday, so started interviewing on Monday. By Wednesday, I had signed the contract and I started the next Monday. Okay? <laughs> so God knew all that. God, God knows the end from the beginning. He has perfect omniscience. He knows what's coming, even though we don't know. He knew all that. But he, he was so gracious to give me a little bit of peace in one of the most unsettling moments in my life. And, and what he blessed me to be reminded of is that you are safe in my hand. Why? It's true all the time. We just need to be reminded of it. My times are in your hand. <laughs> And there's, there's a lot bigger problems that come in our life than just employment. My times are in God's hand. And also what we did there, there in that sunset, um, we sang, God moves in mysterious ways. And there was somebody there on the beach that actually uh, realized that was a, we didn't know him, but kind of realized that was a special moment and they recorded that for us. But, but then it feels like that what ended up happening over the next month was, uh, this is number 347, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Pretty much it feels like this song was just an exposition of, of what happened. <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And obviously I was thinking about this as I was standing. Uh, again, the Lord in his providence is so gracious, allowed me to go to the beach, <laughs> to be sitting by the physical water, to be reminded of this. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds, you said, boy, those... When those clouds come, if they are dark and gray and they look nasty, you want to know what that means? That means they're full of rain. <laughs> the darker they are, the more rain they got up in them. The clouds you so much dread... They are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence. I mean, sometimes we don't understand. Like We look at that. Don't ever, don't ever look at a circumstance and say, why, 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 why? No, no. Don't look at his providence and think he's frowning. I guarantee you he's not. <laughs> Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And sometimes when those clouds break and the rainbow shines, you're going to see that, slide, that smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. Boy, when it starts happening, it happens quick. <laughs> many times, not always, but many times when God's providence starts unfolding, we see that in the book of Nehemiah. I know I've seen it in my life in many different circumstances. When God's providence, when that door's open, boy, it's a wide open door. And his, pro his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. Scan his works in vain. But God is his own interpreter. <laughs> and he will make it plain. And then obviously we have the other hymn, number, uh, number 451, The Unseen Hand. There is an unseen hand to me that leads through ways. I cannot see. You know, I think about the people of, uh, 
The second time, again, we, we said the first generation dropped the ball. The second generation, when that ark was, was crossing Canaan, they were supposed to follow the ark because he said, you have never passed this way here before. In other words, you've never been here before. You just follow the ark. Who's the ark? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So you don't know where you're going. What do you do? Just follow the ark. <laughs> just follow us. Follow me. <clears throat> There is an unseen hand in me that leads through ways I cannot see. Let me turn over there and get, get the wording of the second verse. Um, His hand has led through shadows drear, and while it leads, I have no fear. I know it will lead me to that home where sin or sorrow ne'er can come. I'm trusting to the unseen hand that guides me through this weary land. And some sweet day I'll reach that strand still guided by the unseen hand. Praise God, right? Praise God for the providential, unseen, good hand of God. But I want to tell you, that hand's still good even when you think you're looking at a frowning providence and even when you think you're looking at dreadful clouds. <laughs> God's hand is still good towards you. God's hand is always moving for your good. And if you have your hearts right before him, there will come a time where those clouds will break, the rainbow will come out, and you will say, wow, glory to God of what he saw fit to do. And I can say uh, with employment, I can say that in marriage, I can say that in, in so many different circumstances, particularly in the employment example I gave today. I'm in a much better spot now than I was before. And I, I can just, there are so many intricacies of that situation that I could, I could go into much greater detail about the reasons why and the timing and I didn't know all that. I couldn't see all that. But the Lord suffered a very sinful act by some people to, to allow this beautiful providence to unfold. And the Lord was guiding that by his hand the whole time. <laughs> we are so thankful for the goodness of God and the good hand of God that, it, that is always upon our life. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.